Welcome to the Swamp Legs Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. Hi, I'm Boomer. Hi, I'm Allie. And we're here to talk about movies again. Woo! Movies! Already, it's been so short a season. It feels <laughs> like... This is also a continuation of an earlier conversation we were having around Halloween. We're just like uh, letting that bleed over into the holiday season. Um, so we're still doing spooky, eerie stuff. I mean, it's part of the song. There's scary ghost stories. That's true. I, that's been an annual Yule tradition for me recently, just telling ghost stories around Christmas time. Oh, that's no cool. ghosts today, just wolves. Very cool. What have y'all been doing lately? Well, I have only watched a few things since we spoke last. This past season of American Horror Story was set in New York in 1981. And like all seasons of American Horror Story, it started off very strong and ended in a, a wet fart. Although this time it was more literal than normal. Um, about three or four episodes <laughs> in, I was like, oh, I don't know if Ryan Murphy is like capable of handling what I think he's trying to handle, which was the AIDS crisis. And he was not. But about halfway through the season, uh, my friend that I was watching it with, I was like, this season really reminds me of a great horror movie that I saw a couple of years ago that we should watch either instead or whenever the season ends. So after we finished the season, I introduced my friend to Knife and Heart, which was my favorite movie of 2019. And I've watched it several times now. And I have to say on this watch through, I actually like the plot made the most sense it ever has. Which is weird because I think of the movie as like a really beautiful, brilliant, you know, pseudo giallo fever dream. But this time through, I'm like, oh, now that I've seen it enough times to remember all of these, you know, oddities, I definitely, you know, understand what is actually happening in this plot again. And what's really interesting is that every time I've ever seen it before, I've always identified most with Vanessa Paradis's character. And and what's interesting is that this time I identified most with Luis, um, her ex-girlfriend who just loves her but cannot handle the strength and like the fury of Anne's love. Because what I think is one of the things I do love most about Knife and Heart is that it is also a story about love and obsession and consumption and the way that like a love that is boundless by having no boundaries also is capable of like great violence even if it's not the killing that is at the center of the film there is there are acts of violence between lovers in this movie both like in the actual text and also in like the meta text so for instance whenever Anne goes to see a play in which like this woman seduces and then is completely destroyed by like a bear that just like rips her to pieces it's like love is death death is love Anyway, I still love it. I still think it's my favorite movie of the 21st century, uh, not just of 2019. But I, although I can't recommend it enough, I also can't recommend it for all audiences. It is not going to be for everyone, which I think we are all in agreement about. I thought you were going to say you rewatched Cruising because that's what the advertising for that series reminded me of. Um, and this is like pretty much a more dreamlike version of Cruising. Yeah. Another film I love and would not recommend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. I also went to the theaters and saw The Menu, uh, which was a lot of fun. Although, I, like, I, I don't want to cannibalize my review. It's already live on the site. But uh, if you are interested, I would say maybe wait for this one. It doesn't demand to be seen in theaters necessarily. And also, like, if you're at home, you can make yourself, like, a nice charcuterie board or like dinner to go along with it you know so you can eat kind of fancy unlike me who was like sitting in the dark of the theater while they ate like caviar and oyster and like you know lemon drops made with like lemon juice that was frozen and powderized instantaneously in the same like device you know i was sitting there in the movie theater with my chili cheese hot dog and my blue ice cream <laughs> and i was like mm. It would really be nice to be eating something that's not this particular delicacy uh, while watching this movie. So wait for it to come out, rent it, and you know, get yourself some nice takeout or make yourself something nice for it. Uh, and then finally, I also saw a new release. It's one I've been wanting to see for a while. I saw Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Aww. Aww. And it was so good. I loved it 
so much. It touched my heart so deeply. I knew that it would, like from the moment that I saw the trailer. But once I saw it, it was even more like, oh, this movie is so sweet. Because I think even in my earliest review for Swamp Flicks, I mentioned that I just love little things like the borrowers or the little bits or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or Ant-Man or, uh, you know, Fantastic Voyage or <laughs> Magic School Bus, anything that involves like little beings interacting with normal sized objects, like stick that shit in my veins. The secret of them, <laughs> you know, when Mrs. Brisby drinks out of a thimble, like it's a glass of water. I think it's the cutest thing that could ever happen. So I really enjoyed Marcel the Shell just on that level alone, but also just if you had a very loving relationship with your grandmother or even a complicated one, it really speaks to that. You know, that's very present and it reminded me of my relationship with my grandmother and, you know, Marcel's journey to try and find out, you know, what happened to the rest of his family. I was touched and moved by it in a way I couldn't have imagined. It's also very funny. Like, yes, the the little things point of view of the movie is also like a stage for just like a rapid fire joke delivery system. Like every yeah. two seconds, there's a joke about something being too small and it's hilarious. So like the whole movie, I was either laughing or crying sometimes simultaneously. Yeah. It really goes back and forth. I, it's so sad. I haven't gotten to see it yet because I'm obsessed with the Marcel shell YouTube videos. They are frequently quoted around this house. And they're quoted in the movie too. Like they, they oh, kind of recycle a couple lines, but there's plenty more here than yeah. just what's in the, the shorts. I had never heard of them before I saw the trailer. Um, wow. From Marcel Bichel. That was not on my radar at all. They're so good. I still will say that, you know, it was very funny. I am underselling the comedy of it as well, but just like Marcel's house becoming like the center of this like social media selfishness campaign of people just trying to take photos in his yard made me oh so sad devastating under attack but also you know marcel is fearless you know he says it about leslie stahl but marcel is fearless and i loved it yeah i had a much bigger emotional reaction to it than i expected like i went in expecting it to be cute and pleasant and it really was like one of the more rewarding trips to the theater i've had this year not that it's hard to make me cry or laugh. Like I had a very similar experience watching the new Downton Abbey movie where I laughed and cried through most of the film. Uh, but this was actually like substantial art and not just like manipulative in the way that movie is. Uh, Allie, what have you been watching? TV wise, I finished up Andor and I really enjoyed it. Everybody's talking about this Andor. I know. And it's so funny to hear from me because I frequently bash star wars even though i don't hate star wars i do bash it it's just fun to bash let's be real people who love star wars love nothing more than to bash star wars it actually makes you more of a fan i know but it's <laughs> the way i bash it i feel like like i like to bash star wars fans and star wars make it a personal attack as well i mean i guess but i like it there's a lot of good commentary about radical movements and how they get started to it and you know there's no jedi there's no like sith lords running around so yeah it's it's not as star warsy as a lot of star wars i feel like everybody who i've talked to who likes it also really likes rogue one so if you liked rogue one you'll probably like andor a lot and i'm just such a sucker for star wars art design and costuming like my one star wars like true weakness is i will sit there and be like oh i want a thing with big hoods i want like a floor length velvet ombre robe like it's so stupid i love star wars clothes it's ridiculous um but i thought this one brought a lot of really great like world building things and yeah a lot of big ideas going around really really enjoyed it but as far as movies are concerned i actually did watch some new releases. I watched Weird, which I thought was a lot of fun. This is the Weird Al biopic? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Did either of you 
catch it yet? No, and I don't know why I haven't. Like, I probably would very much enjoy it. Yeah, I think you would. It's a lot of fun, and it's really funny. And, you know, I love the trajectory of Daniel Radcliffe's career so much. You know, Harry Potter to just this, like, bizarre Weird Al movie. Okay, I know why I haven't watched this, actually. Like, jogging my memory, it's really long for a comedy, and it's on an ad-based platform. So, like... Yeah. Imagining spending over two hours watching a Weird Al comedy seems like a, a big commitment. <laughs> Where, like, if this movie were, like, 80 minutes, I would have knocked it out. What platform is it on? The Roku channel. Oh. Oh. Okay. It's a Roku channel original. Yeah. And maybe the only wild. Roku channel yeah. original. <laughs> well, there's Roku channel original shows, in case y'all didn't know. Uh, one of my favorite recent, like what the hell is this show discoveries is a roku channel original you're gonna get our tubi money revoked i know but maybe i'll get our roku money <laughs> um the show that i discovered on there is called murder house flip oh that's Basically. the one where they try yeah yeah where they yeah, uh yeah. renovate people's murder houses it's really good there's some really horrifying things on that show just why i'm just like how did this get made as a show? <laughs> it sounds like an algorithm picked up on the popularity of true crime and house flipping shows. Exactly. It just produced itself. I was going to say, they really like nailed it. Two interests just colliding. Is it worth watching the Weird Al movie before I do best of the year list making? I think so. Interesting. I'm going to throw that out there. I think so. I'm going to come right out and say that I will not be watching it before I do my end of year list. I don't want to. That seems like not your style of comedy. Under any illusions about it. Yeah. I mean, it's not. (laughs) Yeah. Which is ironic because I, you know, as a parody musician myself, it's just, um, (laughs) I I don't know. Weird Al just kind of went past me in the stream. It never happened during a period in my life uh, when I was very receptive to it. I've seen so many conversations at parties, like you put two men together and you mention Weird Al and they become the best of friends. And it is like (laughs) witnessing an alien encounter to me. I'm about to start trying this. Um, Thank you. Yeah. You know, um, as uh, Joel McHale's character on Community once said of Paul Rudd, I understand the appeal and I don't begrudge those who want it, but I'm not going to stand in line for it and I'm not going to participate. I think you would like it. I mean, I'm not gonna, mm. I'm not gonna twist your arm around, but there's only one mechanism in which you could, which is next time it's your turn to pick a movie. We're all Ooh. watching the Weird Al yeah, story. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Once again, weaponizing the podcast, right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if, if I'm cutthroat enough for that, y'all. Yeah, we've not gotten into the era of the show where we punish each other with things that we suspect that other people won't like. <laughs> but it could be an interesting turn in the stream for us. I don't think any of us are mean enough for that. Like, I was just saying <laughs> I was mean for bashing Star Wars and the fans. But I don't think I'm mean enough to my friends for that. And I also think y'all would both enjoy it. Because I think it is wacky and charming. And, you know, just Daniel Radcliffe living out his weird career is always a delight. So the next uh, new release I watched was Fire of Love, which, you know, we were talking about how it was, like, custom made for me. And it was. And I loved it so freaking much. You know, when I wrote about it, I wrote about it and Marcel the Shell as kind of like a dual review of both movies because they were both, like... Twee aesthetics to like a heightened extreme. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and I've been seeing a lot of like kind of movies that reminded me of like Twee, like classic era Twee, but like in a more strange, abstracted way mm-hmm. come out this year. Uh, thinking of Strawberry Mansion as well. Um, there's been a lot of stop motion stuff. So yeah, I, I, I thought of those two movies in unison. So it's funny to hear them come up together. Yeah, I loved it. You know, even though I know the story of them, I still cried. I still was like, oh. So I loved, loved like hearing about them and learning about their lives. And I was just like, oh, there's a world out there, you know, in our big multiverse where I became a volcanologist. So, yeah, it's beautiful. You know, just the footage that they got of the volcanoes and like learning about their lives and like their love story and just like as people, they're so wild. 
Speaking of the footage, like what really surprised me was like the pitch of it is that it's these two scientists who studied volcanoes and were married and they died doing that field work. So you kind of expect this like beautiful nature footage, but like in more of like a Nat Geo kind of way, like not in like a artistic lens. But like I was shocked by how much the movie was about them as like filmmakers and like their method in collecting the imagery because they seemed like inspired by French New Wave aesthetics Mm -hmm. of the time as much as they were by, you know, the magic of volcanoes. Yeah. So like the footage, like extremely well framed and like fun to look at. And they're having a lot of like kind of prankish skits between the eruptions. Well, and I think, you know, eventually the documentary gets into like the importance of them having been really good filmmakers as well. Like the positive power of their film, which is... Uh, like I said, tears. And then the next new release I watched was Barbarian, which yes. was great. I liked that it didn't go any direction I thought it was going to go. It was a lot of fun. Also, Castle Freak vibes. Just going to throw that out. Yeah, majorly so. Majorly <laughs> so. You think that movie would have gotten better or worse reviews if it was called Airbnb Freak? <laughs> Uh, oh. probably better from the people who are like, I love it when a movie is very explicit with me and I know, I know exactly what's going to happen because Airbnb Freak does much better explain what the plot is. Yeah, <laughs> Fair enough. Does. Yeah, that's kind of a spoiler. <laughs> it spoils it, yeah. Yeah. Also, I just loved the scene where uh, the dirtbag character Ask comes in. Yeah. And he... Uh, finds this like horrifying space underneath his house and then gets out the tape measure <laughs> yes that was my favorite thing in it too i i think i even included that in my review i was like oh, this is so funny it's, it has no right to be as funny as it is i laughed so hard and then as far as you know other media i've been ingesting i've uh continued my great year of romance novels and i've been working through the 50 shades trilogy so eventually y'all will have to hear me talk about the movies i'm curious about those uh you know they're bad i know without having seen them i know they're bad but i'm still curious i mean i'm sure they're not good i don't know so as someone who's been reading through the genre a lot my biggest thing with the books is that they're not as ridiculous as so many of the other books in the genre And they're not even as ridiculous as books that are similar to this book. And also, I just think having three books for it is absolutely unnecessary. It could have been one book, edited down, condensed, but gotta have that cash cow, says E.L. James. Especially since she wrote another trilogy that's the same story, but from Christian Grey's perspective, y'all. Really? Imagine having a creation that you could just go to the other side of and make money on. Weren't they also, um, they started off as like Twilight fan fiction and she had to like de-Twilight them to get them sold? Yes. That's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Especially because like, it's so de-Twilighted. And I say this as someone who's only read the first Twilight book, but it's so de-Twilighted except for the fact that it takes place in Washington. It doesn't even take place in, like, Forks, Washington. It takes place in Seattle. That's about the only similarity. I don't know. They're fine, I guess. If you wanted to read ridiculous romance novels, there's so many others out there. That, of course, it makes sense that this is the one that got popular because it's so, like, middle of the road. Like, there's nothing super, super weird about it. I don't know. We're not going to turn this into... Allie criticizes romance novels, the podcast. So with that in mind, (laughs) and knowing that y'all will have to look forward to me watching the Fifty Shades trilogy, or maybe I'll just make the podcast watch it. Maybe that will be my accidental punishment for us all. All three in one episode would be a power move that has not been seen in this podcast before. Yeah. A potentially apocalyptic scenario. Don't make me mad, y'all. I'll make us do it. You're like handcuffed to the nuclear football now. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Pretty much. No, y'all never make me mad. I mean, I'll give you a chance now. Brandon, (laughs) what have you been watching? What are you doing? 
I have seen 16 feature films from 2022 in the past two weeks. Bless your heart. I've been getting awards screeners in the mail uh, for voting in the Southeastern Film Critics Association poll. I am very glad that this period of time has come to an end because it's not good to cram that many movies into your brain at once. Like none of them have that much room to breathe, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not like fair to any of the individual movies. And um, a lot of times I'm like popping in a screener just cause I have it. Like would I have gone to the theater to watch this? Probably not. So why am I doing that at home? Just cause I have it in my hand to be doing anything. So I don't know. I don't want to, obviously go through all of these because that would be too much <laughs> i guess i get, i kicked it off um with two movies that boomer reviewed that I was kind of interested in um i watched both don't worry darling and do revenge oh and the only interesting thing i have to say about that is that i liked don't worry darling more and i, I yeah. thought it was okay all right i'll i'll accept that okay here's the thing do revenge has some of the best costuming i've seen in a movie in a long time every scene has like five great outfits in it gorgeous yes Yes. that wardrobe is in search of a movie to exist in like it just never finds a good rhythm a few jokes land here or there but like there's those scenes are like what's her name sansa stark has a freak out about cocaine that has no sense of like any human being has ever spoken like that before. And it's not like comically exaggerated. It's just like a strange performance. Like it was just like a bunch of stuff happening for however, like way too long for a comedy. I don't know. It was like over two hours. It felt like it is very long for a comedy. I can't argue yeah. with you there, but I did not like hate it or anything. And I was delighted by every new outfit. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it wasn't like a waste of time or anything. And Don't Worry Darling, I, I thought, also had very beautiful costumes as well. And uh, was fine. I, I didn't, like, have a strong reaction to it. It's definitely not worth all the, like, vitriol and uh, shame no. that's been put upon it. No, yeah. It's a pretty decent genre picture. It's just, I think it's just been, you know, review-bombed by sad little internet weirdos. It kind of reminded me, and this is going to be a very unwelcome comparison for you, but... <laughs> It reminded me when um, Joker got nominated for Oscars a few years ago. And like, I think that movie is pretty good for what it is. Like as a character piece and an excuse for a talented actor to be creepy. It's a pretty good, nasty little genre movie. It does not deserve as much attention and conversation as it got. So then all the conversations around it, like the discourse was just like so overblown and it was just like over discussed when like it could have been a direct video horror movie pretty much. And it would have been fine. <laughs> like if Batman was not involved, no one would have been mad or happy about it. It would have just been like, a, that was a pretty good little character piece. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like there are certain really great visuals in don't worry, darling, you know, especially when it comes to like doing choreographed dances and everything that are part of like a nightmare slash uh, subconscious experience that I think elevate it, but I, I don't feel the need to fight on its behalf. You know what I mean? Yeah. I do want to push back on that a little bit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm in a fighting mood, I guess. But uh, those like Busby Berkeley, like black and white choreographed dance numbers look great. They also appear every five to 10 minutes for the entire movie and they don't change much. Like it's a repeated image. To the point where it was like, it has great images. I just wish they were more varied. Okay. So like the 10th time that happens, I was like, oh my God, do anything else, please. So I don't know. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> it's definitely not a disaster. I definitely don't think the Harry Styles performance deserves as much conversation as it's gotten because he's barely in the movie and he's a non-factor. He's just there. Like, I don't know what people are making fun of because he has like three lines. Are people dogging on him or are they loving yeah, yeah. him too much? Oh, okay. yeah. Like teenage girls in the audience laughing at how bad his emotional outbursts are in like the big fight scene. And it's like uh, they were there not to watch a movie. They were there to like marry Harry Styles fan cams. So now he's like a big joke. I don't know. Too many people talking about this movie in weird contexts that, like, I don't think it deserves. It's like a pretty good Sounds genre like a picture. Really niche conversation that I would never have heard about outside of this podcast. 
Well, I'm on the internet too much Harry is pretty Styles much the answer to most things like that. Making fun of him. <laughs> there were some clips that went viral, Allie. They went viral. Uh, I think there's medication for that. Yeah, it's called me going outside and touching grass, which I need yeah, to do more often. I was going to say, touch grass. My favorite Gen Z slang. Um, speaking of Gen Z, I did see the bones and all Gen Z road trip love story uh, that's set in the 80s, but it's four teens now. The new Luca Guadagnino picture. I don't know if y'all have seen this or Mm-mm. read much about it. It was very much a topic of conversation at Thanksgiving, but I haven't seen it. I've only it's seen good. the discourse about it, quote, normalizing cannibalism and how we're all living in hell. Right? <laughs> See, that's the kind of bullshit I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of having to exist. Oh, God. I don't want to hear anyone who their main topic of interest is not movies. I don't want to hear them talk about movies ever again. I'm, I'm over that. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. It's a pretty good road trip love story that also features some cannibalism (laughs) and uh it's a pretty like straightforward metaphor about you know just like outsiders i want to say people close to the poverty line like they're kind of like travelers not by choice like they're kind of like looking for a place in the world because where they come from is sad and desolate um and like there are outbursts of gore where they have to eat flesh to survive in the film. And it's very gross and like leans into it in the same way he does in Suspiria. But uh, the movie's not a horror film, really. It's like this kind of like drama about people who can't escape their past and who they are. And uh, when they try to make a little world for themselves, just the two of them, um, all this bullshit that's been keeping them down their entire lives keeps coming back to the surface and they have to start over again. Um, I feel the same way about all of his movies where like, I liked Suspiria. I liked A Bigger Splash. I liked Call Me By Your Name. I liked this movie. I don't feel strongly passionate about any of those films. I think they're like good. He makes good movies. Um, And that's going to sound almost like an insult, but like not everything has to be amazing, mind blowing, incredible, the greatest thing of all time. Like if a director makes consistently good movies, like that's a good director. That's how I feel about him. I also kind of wish he would like, Get a little trashier. <laughs> and call me by your name, Timothy Chalamet fucks the peach, but Army Hammer does not bite into it. Uh, <laughs> in this movie, they eat flesh, but they don't enjoy it, and it gives them no... Like, you know, in, like, Raw, like, oh, yeah. very similar, like, coming-of-age cannibal thing, like, she really likes eating that flesh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she might feel oh bad gosh, about it afterwards. so into it. Yeah. He never gets to that point. Like, there's no, like, cathartic release where he like fully indulges in like the gross thing it, it just sort of happens and it's supposed to be gross and sad yeah so yeah maybe that's what's holding me back i think it's weird having only seen the suspiria movie i feel like he kind of might be trying to like tread this line between being popular and being weird and you know he's doing fine like we're like you're saying he's a fine director but the only way you can truly great is to you know lose your shackles right yeah he, there's an air of respectability in his work that i wish he would like ditch a little bit like the fact that this movie came out in awards season instead of around halloween i think is like an indication of what he's aiming for the fact that it came out at thanksgiving instead of a, a month earlier actually says a lot about how it's being marketed and how it was like tonally pitched and obviously the more airbnb freak style like halloween season releases are are more of my bread and butter personally but i still think it's worth seeing and i think y'all would like it i love that we're just gonna call it airbnb freak now uh i do have another somber genre movie that came out recently Uh, it's in theaters right now it's called the eternal daughter which i feel like i've referenced in the show before yeah i just saw that it won something and went about trying to figure out how to acquire it how was it it's good. Um, I haven't seen this director's other movies before, Joanna Hogg, but she's like a British director. And she's made this two-part film called The Souvenir that is about her life in film school. Um, and in it, Tilda Swinton plays her real-life daughter's mother. And the director is Tilda Swinton's daughter's godmother. So in this one... Tilda Swinton is playing the grown-up version of her daughter's character from the Souvenir movies, and Tilda Swinton is playing her own mother in a dual role. So, like, the Tilda Swinton stunt casting has reached this, like, 
incredible peak in this film where like it's pretty frequent for her to play her own family member in a movie. Usually she plays a pair of sisters. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of like Okja. What are some other Hail ones? Caesar. Yep. Uh, I just watched that Pinocchio movie, the Del Toro one, and she plays two sisters uh, that are mythical creatures in that one. Like, it's not uncommon for her to do this kind of stunt casting. This was filmed during the pandemic in Wales, like during lockdown, I think in secret, like they weren't supposed to be filming a movie. Um, and she is about half of the cast, uh, just her, because she's um, on a mother-daughter vacation in this hotel that seems to be empty. And it just feels like a ghost story. And it's shot with this like eerie fog coming off the moor. There's a lot of blue and green gel lights. So it's got this sort of like ethereal Northern lights kind of like color palette to it. And in the hotel, her and her mother are just having a really shitty little vacation together. So if you like just that Christmas time ghost story feel, like I, I think it's got a, a somber mood um, in a way that's like effectively creepy, but it's not going to have like ghost story payoffs. Like there's no actual ghost in the movie really. And there isn't a lot of trickery with her and her mom. Like, Tilda Swin's playing both roles, but like not really doing much to distinguish herself. Like it's not like she's like putting on like big buck teeth for one of the characters to like, you know, separate the two of them. And they don't share the screen ever. Like the camera kind of cuts back and forth, uh, shot reverse shot. Um, so they never actually have to share the frame. But um, what it really does, and what what I think is really cool about it, is that it gets to the sort of passive aggressive bickering like fights that aren't even really fights uh between family members so like the big climactic emotional scene is she sets up this dinner for her mom's birthday and the mother comes down to this like kind of elaborate setup and is like i'm not hungry actually you you just order food i'm not gonna eat if you're not gonna eat oh wait you just eat and that will give me enjoyment seeing you enjoy food Oh, no, no, no. I'll wait till you're hungry, and then I'll eat when you're hungry, and we'll eat together. Like, that sort of back and forth, like, I don't want to be a bother. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually, like, turning into this huge fight over nothing. That was, like, devastating in a way. Like, it, it was kind of funny, but it was also, like, oh, my God, I hate that I am susceptible to this kind of conversation. I hate that about myself. And the movie really digs into that discomfort. A wolf may be more than he seems. He may come in many disguises. What's that? The wolf that ate your sister was hairy on the outside. But when she died, she went straight to heaven. The worst kind of wolves are hairy on the inside. And when they bite you, they drag you with them to hell. What do you mean, hairy on the inside? Like a furry coat? Hush now, foolish child. Listen. I made this group watch The Company of Wolves. It was my first time watching it, and I've been meaning to watch it for a while. It is basically a coming-of-age story. We open in on this family and an older sister. The older sister is supposed to go up and get the younger sister, who's been like asleep in her room supposedly sick but you know the family doesn't believe that we go up to the room sister knocking the door girls asleep and then we cut to her dreams in which her sister wanders get lost in the wood killed by wolves and suddenly we're in this like fantasy fairy tale village and from there it is a set of stories told by Angela Lansbury character of the grandmother and it would flash to these images of the story. So there's a few stories in here. There's a story about a newlywed couple and then on their wedding night the man walks out, it's a full moon, disappears. The wife gets remarried, has kids, man reappears, is enraged by the woman having kids, calls her an adulterer, and then in this amazingly grotesque, beautiful transformation scene, rips off all of his skin to become a wolf. The second one is about 
a man making a deal with the devil, I guess, basically to put hair on his chest because he gets this vial of a potion and starts rubbing it on his chest. He starts getting hairy. The woods snatch him. The third one is about this party full of rich people. It's a wedding party. And the uh, husband's mistress comes and she's very pregnant. And she curses all of these rich people to become wolves. And in my notes, uh, I uh, labeled this story the Rich Fuck Wolf Party, which I feel like y'all would appreciate. (laughs) The next story is the main character's own Little Red Riding Hood story, where she meets this hunter in the woods and he charms her with his fancy man ways. And then he's a wolf and eats her grandma who's been telling all these wolf stories up until the rich people. And then the last wolf story is about a wounded she-wolf goes to town and gets help. Like, comes out of the bottom of a well, shot in town, goes to a church, gets help, and then goes back to the bottom of the well. So, Brandon, I know this is not your first-time watch, um, but it is your first-time watch, Boomer. What did you think? Uh, well, I really enjoyed this. I really loved it. I loved all of the practical effects with all of the morphing. I loved the complete incomprehensibility and dreamlike nature of everything that was constantly happening in those woods. Like, oh, I'm going to climb a tree and find a bird's nest with an egg in it that contains a baby. It's a stork nest, actually. Oh, it's a stork nest. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, you know, I was confused by it because... In my brain, psychologically speaking, when Angela Lansbury is on screen and talking, she is correct. Um, And in this movie, kind of the point is that she is wrong. And it took me a really long time to get to there. Because to me, if Angela Lansbury is talking, she's telling the truth. I mean, you know, she's not wrong about all of it, though. She's teaching. uh, I kind of feel like the the thought process is that she's teaching the wrong lessons, right? Yeah. She's teaching Rosaline, you know. Don't do any of these things. Don't eat a windfallen apple. Don't trust a man whose brows come together. When in fact, you know, what the reality of the situation is, is for her to grow and become the truest version of herself, for her outside to match her inside, which is, you know, kind of a recurring theme, like with the mm-hmm. the rich fuck party that you were talking about, where the people are become the wolves that they are in flesh as they are in spirit. You know, that she has to cast off everything that Granny has taught her. Yeah, and, you know, there's the very good literal visual metaphor of burning the red cloak. Which is very sad to me because I re- love that red cloak. But yeah, she's like shutting off what her grandma has told her. And like the people around her. Because, you know, she's coming to terms with growing up and sexuality and, you know, gender stuff going on. And on top of that, like, she hears all these stories and she sees what's going on between, like, humans and is still just kind of like, but what about the wolves? Like, I don't know. Sounds like wolves are fine because they're honest. I I do think they keep Angela Lansbury being wrong as, like, a shocking reveal at the end. Like, I think you're supposed to trust her up until maybe the last minute. (laughs) Because, like, basically she's telling her to distrust men. And, like, the manlier the men are, like, the hairier and, like, more brutish they are, the more you should distrust them. And it's not until she's talking to her mother instead of her grandma that that starts to soften or it's like, your grandma doesn't know everything. Your grandma can be wrong. And then at the very end when she decides to, like, tame the wolf that eats the grandma instead of, like, killing him, um, she, like, finds sympathy for him. That's, like, a huge shock, I think. It is, like... Like you're saying, the point of the movie is like her learning to indulge and take pleasure in that animal behavior instead of like destroying it. Yeah. You know, talking about discovering like sexuality and that's always been, you know, a subtext of the Little Red Riding Hood myth. But I also think she kind of just embraces the fact that she's wild and like different from a lot of the people she's around. Like... She questions things. She wants to be free and different and run around and climb trees. Well, it's like uh, 
the last movie we talked about on this show with the other crew was called Girl Asleep. And in that one, she goes to sleep at a party. She has like a power nap where she's mad. And she has this dream where she like works through all of her childhood stuff and she kind of wakes up an adult. And this is the same thing. Like she's having a very productive nap where she like uh, learns that it's okay to, you know, indulge her animal instincts, but also like to question her parents ultimate authority over everything like that's her character change throughout the movie is learning to become wild and uh trust that instead of trusting the fairy tale lessons like the hansel and gretel little red riding hood style lesson about like not going into the woods and trusting strangers who offer you stuff like she's learning that it's okay to actually do that as long as it's worthwhile to her i also think there's kind of the idea that life as a person is an isn't safe no matter what like it doesn't matter whether or not you're dealing with wolves or people so you might as well live how you want yeah which i can really i really love the other thing i uh really really appreciate about this movie is it does not give two shits about time frame and so i feel like from story oh, to yeah story, not even a little bit we're just like seeing different like anachronistic things like the rich book party is very like versailles sun king french style and the devil in the woods drives like this great or arrives in the great car like driven by this lady like eh, i just i love that well by having it framed as a modern girl's dream Mm -hmm. it really frees itself up to do whatever it wants and like i mean y'all know me that is my favorite shit yeah (laughs) Like, uh, I love movies that are like, well, it's a movie. We can do whatever we want. We're going to just play with dream logic and let's just see where this takes us. Yeah. Because I feel like it's a lot easier for, you know, movies to be like, okay, we're in this fairy tale world. We'll keep it medieval looking. And yeah, I like that it did not. It went with its wildest impulses, you know? Yeah. It really enjoyed being like, yeah, here's here's Terrence Stamp, an uncredited Terrence Stamp in a car in the woods. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> On a relatively cheap budget, too. Like, I, I feel like this is very MTV era, like music video production values, but it still gets a lot of incredibly striking imagery off of what looks like pretty limited closed sets. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the dream logic of music video filmmaking in itself, too. And I feel like that carries over here pretty well. I'm thinking right now of uh, her dolls from her room that are like kind of around her bed, like come to life as these sort of like sports mascot looking characters and they're fucking terrifying. So good. And those are probably pretty cheap to make. Yeah. And Granny is one of those dolls too, as revealed whenever her like porcelain head shatters. Yeah. When she faces the wolf. Oh man, that shot of her waking up an adult and uh, the wolves break through the other side of the mirror in her bedroom and sort of like flood into the real world. Mm-hmm. That's cinema, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. I have a um, private letterbox list that is just every time I love a movie, I'm like to the point where I'm like, this is one of my favorite movies. I just throw it on there. Um, and it is like hundreds of titles long at this point. And this one I went to go add after rewatching it for this conversation, and it was already on there. Oh, yeah. That's so, great. I was, that's how much I love this I was going to say, I think this is one of my <laughs> new favorite movies, like, legitimately. It checks so many of my boxes. You know, we were talking about Fire of Love being a very, very alley movie, but, like, I was like, I don't think they can fit, like, any more, like, alley-loving stuff into this movie. <laughs> like, I don't think they could do, like, check any more of my boxes off. This is amazing yeah when i mentioned that i had not seen this you were very surprised because it ticks off a lot of my boxes too with angela lansbury and werewolf stuff and like it being very similar in many ways or having sort of a similar thesis in some ways to uh, ginger snaps and how that is also about like the relationship between the menarche and the coming of lycanthropy i also was thinking a lot about suspiria watching it Yes. Not that it looks or sounds anything like Suspiria, but there's something about its particular brain space that felt very Suspiria to me. Yeah, because Suspiria feels like a nightmare. Like every time I watch it, I'm just like, I'm dreaming, aren't I? And this movie, it just feels like 
a wild dream. Um, I, I guess to some people this would count as a nightmare, but considering how horrifying my nightmares get, this is fine. But yeah, yeah, the amount of stuff they accomplish on the budget. Once again, I love him ripping off his skin, and you know, in no world would this like so look quote unquote like realistic. But with the dream logic, is horrifying and goopy and disgusting. I like that that's what you're focusing on is like the flesh tearing because I feel like the money shot is supposed to be the werewolf face emerging from the human face like a sleeve. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was really good, too. It looks great, but they basically just like stole Rick Baker's like (laughs) invention for that. Like I I kind of remember this being one of his projects because that that like face within the face thing is like what he did for what did he work on, like the howling and uh, American werewolf in London. But it does enough other strange stuff that it's not like a complete copy. Um, and the, the flesh tearing in particular is gnarly. <laughs> like uh, the, yeah. that, that exposed muscle um, is painful to look at, even though it is, like you said, a little artificial. There's something about the milk turning pink oh. whenever the uh, yeah. werewolf's head lands in it that's really cool also. Beheaded by Carson from Downton Abbey, which I'm legally required to mention every five minutes. This is my new Star Trek. <laughs> I'm going to throw in Downton Abbey references. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure they have some sort of servant bell in Downton Abbey I could ring. If I was going to pitch this as like an important movie in any way, I think the list it belongs at the top of is like best British anthology horrors. I would agree. Yeah. We just talked about the House of Drip Blood. Mm-hmm. And like that is a very standard like amicus style British stage actors putting on a show. Uh, with a wraparound story that doesn't really matter that much. Like, it's just like an excuse to jump into these different tales. And this one, like, it turns that structure into its own beautiful art form where, like, the wraparound story is the main part of the text, but it sort of, like, fluidly bleeds in and out of these, like, side tales. Some of them are only 20 seconds. Some of them are, like, minutes long. Um, And it just, like... Does that dream within a dream yes. structure that gets more and more bizarre the more like Russian nesting doll it, shape it takes? And uh, yeah, I just think it's like a very beautiful, almost like poetic mutation of a British portmanteau horror tradition that like kind of elevates it to a whole different level where it's like its own art form. And all the stories have a thematic tie-in in that they're all about werewolves, but they don't feel repetitive. Like, they, they all have their own strange little events and images that, like, never feel like it's repeating itself, even though it's all about one kind of creature. Yeah. I also think the uh, second werewolf transformation with the, the huntsman was really great, too. Just, like, gripping out of the skin suit as a wolf. I don't know, just all the yeah. transformations. Oh, I love them. I like that there were so many different kinds too. <laughs> like it really it didn't just it wasn't just like, oh, we have one effect that we're gonna use over and over again. It's like here's a bunch of werewolf stories with different transformations, you know, to make them more fascinating. You know, we're gonna use as many kinds as we can think of instead of just limiting ourselves to one transformation format. Have y'all um looked at the director of this neil jordan like y'all are y'all familiar with him no i did look him up after this and i was like oh the crying game oh a couple of other things but i don't i don't know what you're driving at and i can't wait to see where you're going i don't know where i'm going either like the (laughs) thing about him is i don't understand him and i never have like he made that movie greta recently that was kind of like a psycho bitty throwback with isabelle huper oh and um chloe grace moretz yeah uh, the Crying Game, like you said. And um, Interview with the Vampire, I guess. It's yeah. Probably his, I mean, everybody knows The Crying Game because it became a punchline, unfortunately. But Interview with the Vampire, if it's not the the second most famous after that one, it's the most famous, right? Oh, yeah. definitely. Uh, Breakfast on Pluto was another one that I liked when it came out. But I, I don't get his career. Like, I don't, I don't understand what drives him as a person. I do know this was an early one for him, and I feel like... I don't know that he's ever beat it. <laughs> I think this is like might be his best work, uh, but it doesn't like tell me any more about who he is as an artist. Like he might just be like a journeyman British director and that's kind of the end of the story. Yeah. I mean, as much as I loved interview with vampire, since I did watch it for the first time recently, this is wonderful. We do love a dark fairy tale on oh. this show. And this is one of the better we ones. Sure do. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's some of my favorite stuff. 
So next week on the show, we're going to talk about holiday movies. Um, it's a very loosely defined topic that uh, I'm sure we're going to have to work out on mic what we're even doing. But like, it was like movies that have a dramatic, iconic moment that happened at a holiday setting. Uh, so we're not doing like full on Christmas movies because that's not the kind of show we are. We don't really like those that much. I think I'm the only one that uh, watches Probably. Them, so yeah. I did pick Meet Me in St. Louis, which I think is like a classic in the Christmas canon, right? Yeah. But it's a movie that also has great Halloween scenes <laughs> and uh, other holidays as well. Uh, so yeah, it, it was supposed to be a holiday melodrama episode, and it's kind of taken shape into something else because the host has rejected the graft. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we didn't know um, how to deal with that topic um so it's kind of varied but i think the two biggest i I think the biggest melodrama we're talking about is uh, a summer place which you can tell from that title most of it takes place in summer there's a little bit of christmas sprinkled in for emotional effect (laughs) and uh that's how i like my calendar i don't put much emphasis on christmas i'm always waiting for this time of the year to wrap up quickly so i can get back to new year's and mardi gras which i do enjoy but we'll, we'll sprinkle in a little holiday cheer and a little holiday metal drop. It'll be fun. Yeah. yeah.